asked something, as most of you will remember, the report which we gave you last week about four teenagers in Greenhouse, Indiana, who said that they were buzzed by flying saucers. Now that story interested me very much, and, uh, and after going over the thing, I decided that it would stand a little bit of checking. For one thing, I didn't uh, exactly believe all of it, so I must have been now that I believe a great deal more of it, believe a great deal more of it, believe a great deal more of it, believe a great deal more of it. Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and as always, I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. So as you know, we've been covering the fascinating events that occurred in the White Mountains of New Hampshire on the night of the 19th through the 20th of September, 1961. Betty and Barney had contacted the U.S. Air Force, and Major Paul W. Henderson of the 100th Bomb Wing at the Peace Base filed a Project Blue Book report regarding their sighting. They had also, on the advice of NICAP, revisited their route on that evening many times to try and identify the exact location of the incident, with no success. When we left Betty and Barney, they had started getting to the bottom of what happened on that fateful night with the help of preeminent psychiatrist and neurologist, Dr. Benjamin Simon. Last episode, we heard only the tip of the iceberg in Barney's first hypnotic regression session. Tonight, we will dig deeper into one of JT's top-tier cases. And also, folks, we'll get to a little bit of the reason why they couldn't find where this occurred as they went back. And I think you'll read between the lines as you listen to the further sessions of Betty and Barney Hill. Really a fascinating case. And so far, we're now up to our fourth episode with this release of it. And if it takes a couple more, it'll take a couple more because this case is one of the all-time greats, my friends. I hope you're doing well wherever you are in the world, all around the world, Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere, heat and cold. It's getting quite chilly down here in Tower Studios. Not as bad as uh, as it will get in the next month or two, but um, yeah, it's starting to get a bit nippy at night, so good thing I've got my Paranormal Sun jumper or hoodie, as the case may be, whatever you want to call it, sweatshirt. And uh, yeah, it, it is uh, nice. I really do enjoy it. And I've got a special executive version where I've got the Paranormal Sun famous photo that I've got with uh, all of our friends on the front, from J. Allen Hynek and Art Bell to Charles Fort and the Wendigo and Bigfoot and UFOs. Got that on the front, and then on the back I've got the Paranormal Sun logo and some further customization as befits the founder, host, editor, sound engineer, booking agent, <laughs> media manager, everything else of Tower Studios. And like I say, folks, really as we have gone down the road of this Paranormal Sun World Tour, it's been amazing. It's been really great to look back at everything that I've done, the people I've got to meet, and all of the great listeners I've got all around the world. And on that note, we've got a few shout-outs here. First and foremost to Kiro in Atlanta. Kiro, thank you so much. Been a long-term supporter of the program, has been listening since pretty much since I really started getting active on Instagram. So thank you so much for supporting and I know you work hard every 
day, every night as the case may be. And thank you for listening and supporting the program and supporting me. It really does mean a lot. So keep at it down there. Keep working hard. I know what it's like in your line of work. And I do tip my hat to you. And I really respect the fact that you do so much to help others. To Mike from Mike's Mystery Mansion, who's a, another podcast. And Mike's celebrating his uh, second season finale. Mike's a really great guy. And we're going to do a collab in the future here, in the fairly short future. Once we can get through season four here, probably then I'll be doing something with Mike. So, Mike, keep up the good work, man. You're doing well. Uh, everybody's journey has to start at the beginning. That's how it is, right? That's how mine was. You're doing a great job so far, so keep at it. Mike Messner up in the mighty Bay Area of Northern California and his excellent podcast, Carefree Highway Revisited. We're going to let Mike speak for himself, however. So, Mike, tell us what it's all about. Hello, music fans. Gordon Lightfoot is one of the greatest folk rock artists of all time, and now there's a podcast celebrating and discussing his work song by song. It's called Carefree Highway Revisited, and every episode, your host, that's me, Mike Messner, will examine one of Gordon's songs with the help of a special guest. So, if that's your cup of tea, give us a listen and give us a follow wherever you get your listening matter. That's Carefree Highway Revisited, a proud member of the that's Not Canon Podcast Network. Yeah, really good podcast. I've been enjoying it, and uh, Mike is a very good host. He's got a good voice for this, and a lot of interesting backstories on those excellent songs from Gordon Lightfoot. So, hey, thanks, Mike, for, for creating the fine programming that you do. And to you, the listeners in general out there, hey, you know, Nigeria, Colombia, Ghana, Ecuador, Mexico, Honduras, Chile, Puerto Rico, and especially Holland, Michigan. So to my U.S. listeners in Holland, Michigan, thank you so much. I've got an idea that Brad might be behind, might be behind some of that. So thanks all, really, honestly, like I say again, it just really does mean the world. I really do appreciate it. And then we've got what we've been working on, the Paranormal Sun World Tour, and I've started to get some of those photos coming in. By the time this hits the airwaves, not too long after that, there'll be a post-up from our chapter president, Mark, in San Antonio. Mark, who represents the U.S. Air Force and the veterans, our attache. Mark, thanks so much for supporting the program. Thanks for being there, catching up, checking up on me. I've had some uh, ups and downs the last few months, and Mark, along with Trey, chapter president in Oregon, and several other of you have checked up on me, and I never forget things like that. So thanks, Mark, and I hope that you enjoy what I've done with your lovely photo. Now, speaking of photos, we've got another friend of the program here, and she'd like to tell you a little bit about her service. Your memories. Pregnancy. Kids growing up. Family. Senior year of high school. Getting engaged. You want to keep those moments forever. But the problem with most photographers is they decide which moments you keep. They'll sell you a single picture or a big all-inclusive package that might include photos you don't want at a cost that's outside of your budget. That's why I don't. You decide. A single photo, a single hour, you choose. You get all of your edited photos, everything, at Andrew Marie Photography. You get quality photos at prices you can afford. After all, they're your memories. Find us on Facebook 
Andrew Murray Photography and Custom Design. So if you're in the greater Jeff City area in Missouri, Andrea is definitely a great photographer and someone that you should keep in mind the next time you've got an event that you want to keep as a memory for the rest of your life. So folks, on that topic of photos, Mark sent through his. I've got a few others that have come through from some of the chapter presidents. If you want to send a photo through and you want me to post it on social media, if you want to be anonymous, hey, just send me a photo of your phone or whatever you're listening on just send a photo of that tune to the paranormal sun tell me where you are in the world you don't have to give me your address just tell me your city and what country you're in and i'll happily post it up on the social media to celebrate our world tour because this is about you too the listeners now again folks i wish that i had deep deep pockets and we could throw all kinds of money at giveaways and that but we can't right now When I go back to work, I will tell you this. We will definitely do a giveaway or two on the show because you deserve it. You've been very loyal listeners. And to consider that we're now up to 105 countries all over the world, hey, you deserve something when I get to the other side and I can actually pay the bills. We're going to keep it pretty brief tonight. We're going to get straight into Betty and Barney Hill because we've got over an hour and a half of Betty and Barney Hill tonight and still many more hours to go before we get to the end of the season. I don't know. Like I say, it could be a couple more episodes. It could be three of Betty and Barney Hill. I'm not quite sure, but we are going to go as long as we need to. After I get done releasing this show, I'm going to take a day or two off of social media and everything else, or at least I'm going to try to. I say that, and then the workaholic in me at times just gets me out here in the studio. But I do intend to take a couple days and just recharge the batteries a bit before we get into the next episode again. So again, Thanks so much for supporting me. If you want to vote on what will be the season finale, go on over to the Facebook group. You can find the link in the show notes. You can find links to everything there. Just click on that link and it will take you to a Linktree type site with all of the different things. Head over there and you can vote on what will be the season finale episode. I've decided that's how we're going to do it, folks. We're going to make it the season finale episode. And yeah, so far, John D's in the lead, and that will be a really interesting one if that's what we do. Now, if Betty and Barney Hill runs long, so what I mean is if, let's say, we get up to episode 20, and we've just finished Betty and Barney Hill, well, we'll do 21 this season. That's just how it's going to be, all right? So thanks for everything, folks. I really do appreciate it. I hope that you enjoy this further episode of the Betty and Barney Hill stuff. And aside from that, you have a great week. Take care. Stay safe, and I will talk to you soon. And the examiner has a long needle in his hand, and I see the needle, and it, it's it's bigger than any needle I've ever seen. And he, I ask him what he's going to do with it, and he said, "Just a simple test to alter me." And I asked him what, and he said he just wants to put it in my navel. It's just a simple test. And I don't know it will hurt. Don't do it. Don't do it. And he said, no, it won't hurt. And he takes a needle into my navel. And he said, 
and I'm crying and I tell her it's hurting, it's hurting, it's hurting, getting it out. <laughs> well, folks, I'll try and do as good of a job as reading Betty and Barney Hill's hypnosis as I can, but after you hear something like that from Betty Hill's own mouth, it's hard to match up to that. Something definitely happened in those mountains in 1961. I'm a firm believer no matter what anyone else says about it. For someone to be so terrified, in my mind, I'm sure there's something more to it than lights in the sky or a dream. So anyway, last week we left off with Barney's harrowing first session. In the attempt to lift the veil of the events of the night of the 19th and the 20th of September 1961, the first probe into the unknown had been made. But the amnesic veil had scarcely been pierced. What was to follow? None of the three knew, and at this point only the doctor was aware of what had been uncovered. All through the session, Betty had been waiting, with some apprehension, in the waiting room. She made the pretense of fingering through a few magazines, but with little success at reading or focusing on them. The waiting room was down the hall from Dr. Simon's office. Even though the offices were soundproof, Betty was aware of the emotional outburst Barney had made at the crucial points. Anticipating that this could happen, the doctor had scheduled the hills at a time when the offices were free of other people. Since the building was empty of all sounds, Barney's two major outbursts were intensified by the silence and Betty's own close attention to what might be happening. It hit me with such force that I sat there and I cried all the time, Betty Hill would later recall, and I sat there wondering what kind of condition Barney would be in when he came out of the doctor's office. There were two big outbursts, the second not as loud as the first. The rest of the time it had been fairly quiet. So I waited. I waited for him to come out. And when he did, both he and the doctor were smiling, pleasant even, and I was quite surprised. So I didn't think I should say anything to Barney at all about my crying and things. I just played it by ear and asked him what happened. I asked him if he was upset, and he said no he wasn't. There was nothing to be upset about, he said. Barney had no true recall about what had happened in the session except for some vague and fleeting impressions. It did not seem to him that he had been under hypnosis for more than a few minutes. He felt no discomfort at all, and only his watch indicated to him that over an hour and a half had gone by. He was insatiably curious about what had happened during the session, but of course there was no way whatever of knowing until the doctor would give him the instruction to remember. There was no feeling associated with the lost time period. On the way back to Portsmouth, they stopped by the International Pancake House. That's a good place, by the way. Well, it used to be. <laughs> They ordered a heaping breakfast, Barney at that time unaffected by the strains of his session. Betty was pressing Barney for details about how he felt, and though she had been in hypnosis for the test sessions, she was anxious to find out Barney's full reaction to the therapeutic session. Barney reassured her there wasn't anything upsetting about it, and Betty continued to withhold from Barney the fact that she had been in tears most of the time he was in the doctor's office. Barney felt fully relaxed until they got back to their home in Portsmouth. He then began to have an overwhelming fear of something, something entirely vague and undefinable, something that he felt he should feel guilty about. He was very frightened about this feeling, as if he had a tremendous pressure in his head. He didn't relate it in particular to the hypnosis. He later described it as something buried in his unconscious, trying to work its way up to his conscious. He got upset enough to start to call the doctor about it, then decided to wait. The thought flicked through his mind that he might not want to go through with the rest of the program, or at least that he asked the doctor to take Betty on next and give him a rest. But his fears gradually left him, and the anticipation and urge to know, to penetrate the mystery, took over. 
When Barney Hill left the office after the first session that Saturday morning, Dr. Simon picked up the microphone of his tape recorder and dictated the following. During the explosive parts of the patient's discussion, he showed very marked emotional discharge. Tears rolled down his cheeks. He would clutch his face, his head, and writhe in considerable eyes. He drew circles in the air, which were in the shape of the eye that he ultimately drew. He actually drew a curve representing the left side of the face, and drew the left eye on it, without any other detail. When asked which eye this was, he showed some confusion. Then he drew the rest of the shape of the head, and also drew in the other eye and the cap and the visor. And then, as an afterthought, he drew in the scarf. Mrs. Hill was induced by post-hypnotic suggestion for reinforcement in anticipation of the time when she will be interviewed. She was in the waiting room for the entire period. It was obvious in the first step of the procedure that Barney had only partially gone beyond the threshold that had blocked his conscious memory on that night. There was still only a vague and disconnected dreamlike description of the enormous object approaching them, the eyes of the figure aboard the ship, a bizarre floating sensation, an apparent accident down the road, and figures in the road with no explainable motive. All through the conscious period of the event, Barney's description was sharp and clear, with attention to the minutest detail. Then, at the point he re-experienced Indian Head, his description became vague and fragmented, detached even. There seemed to be two resistance points, one at the moment he raised the binoculars to his eyes, just after he had driven off and the object moved over the car, and the other at some point further down the road, a roadblock. Here the account Barney gave leaped to a comment about arriving home at Portsmouth later than he had expected. All through the account under hypnosis, Barney had indicated his deep-set resistance to the idea of unidentified flying objects. As Barney later said, the likelihood of the object being a product of wishful thinking on his part seemed very slim indeed. His strong objections to the existence of the phenomena were deeply set, although his ambivalence about the experience was puzzling. Dr. Simon was orienting his treatment to the recall of the patient's experiences and their accompanying thinking and feeling not to the establishment of the reality or non-reality of unidentified objects. Whether the experiences were true in the absolute sense was far less important to the doctor than their existence as part of the patient's past or present mental life. Throughout the investigation, tests to establish reality were, of course, in progress, but no preliminary conclusions were possible at this time. A great deal of evidence remained to be obtained, particularly from Betty Hill, who he had not yet heard from. The incident had little or no precedent. The roadblock, the figures Barney recalled in the road, and the strange reactions Barney had in the later part of the session would need further exploration, as well as any possible distortion or fantasy. Barney's pleas to Dr. Simon to let him wake up came at those moments when emotions were resurgent and memories were probably painful. Many recorded cases indicate the subject's resistance to the operator as he attempts to push past this block holding back the conscious memory. Only the doctor's patient persistence can overcome the resistance. The doctor's decision to keep Barney in the trance, in spite of his intense ab reaction or emotional outburst, was based on the doctor's judgment of how much he could be safely permitted to endure. On February 29, 1964, the Hills arrived punctually for their appointment, Betty being reinforced again, and Barney remaining in the office for his second therapeutic session. Before putting him in the customary trance, Dr. Simon asked him a few questions in review. Doctor, well, how have you been, Mr. Hill? Barney, I've been fine, physically I've been fine at least, but, but I've been upset. 
Doctor, tell me about it. Barney, well, last week, after I left your office, I began having what I thought was re remembrance of what had taken place in the office, and this became quite disturbing to me. Doctor, and what did you remember? Barney, I remembered eyes, and I thought those eyes were telling me something, and I became alarmed because I thought my very sanity was in jeopardy. I considered calling you after reaching home, but I did not, and my wife and I went out to visit friends, and that relieved the tension some. Doctor, is that the only thing you remember? Barney, basically, yes. Another interesting thing that seemed to happen, I began to pick out little details about my trip, which I thought was interesting, because I never thought of these things before. I'd given no thought to them, such as stopping in New York State and buying a six-pack of beer, and Betty and I taking it to a motel. I thought of how, when we were told, we could take the little doggie in, and I put her in the bathroom and tied her with a long chain, because the bathroom was tiled, in case she made an accident. It wouldn't soil the rug, and these things seemed to come back to me. Doctor, they seem to be things you hadn't told me, but of course you wouldn't remember that. But I had told you to remember everything, and these seem to be things that you skipped. Barney, oh, I see. Doctor, because when you are in a trance, you are told to remember everything, and these seem to be irrelevant details, but you hadn't mentioned them, the ones you mentioned now, so maybe you felt a little guilty that you hadn't, although they they are probably irrelevant. Speaking of that, had you had much to drink on this trip? Barney, that was the only thing. Doctor, the six-pack? The two of you? Barney, yes. We each had a can of beer Sunday evening, and then we retired, and we brought back the four cans left. Doctor, I see. You hadn't been doing much drinking on this trip at all, then. Barney, no. Doctor, did this anxiety fade away as the week went along? Barney, it more or less did. Yes, it did. It became sharpened last night, though. Last week, Saturday morning when I got up, I felt a little nauseous, as if anticipating, in anticipation of this. Last night, this occurred again. Doctor, you're quite concerned about this experience. You'll begin to feel all right about that. You'll be all right. You won't have to worry about your sanity. This reassurance may have hypnotic force, since repeated contact with the doctor at times increases suggestibility. Here was a warning that the repressed material would have to be dealt with carefully. It was threatening to break through prematurely in the absence of the doctor. He would make future instructions for amnesia more compelling until things had been worked through to a greater extent. But tell me, what do you think about this I business? What do you think of it? Does it connect up with anything? Does it suggest any thoughts to you? Barney. No, it doesn't. Well, yes, uh, I might say the only connection it does have is a foreboding type of effect, of, of betraying, of having been given a warning. This is the only kind of effect it has on me. Doctor. You feel you've been given a warning? Barney. Yes. Doctor. I see. Have you ever had that thought or feeling before? Barney. No, I've never had anything like that before. Doctor. About hypnosis, do you feel the eyes play a part in that? Barney. No, I don't think so. Doctor. Well, you wanted me to take Betty and take you off the hook for a while, is that it? The doctor refers to a brief mention of this Barney had made as he entered the office. Barney. Well, that's what I thought. Doctor. Do you recall the eyes as part of the session we had? Or was it something that just hung over with you? Barney. The eyes just seemed to hang over from that. Doctor. Well, that was the last thing we got to. It was last Saturday, and it did carry over a bit. I'll see to it 
that you don't have that anxiety. We'll resume. He's now preparing to put Barney in the deep trance state again. You don't remember now where we left off. We'll go back, and I can probably take some of that over again. Let's go back a bit before the eyes came into the picture. The doctor gives the cue words. Barney's eyes close immediately, and his head nods forward on his chest. You are deeper and deeper and deeper asleep, fully relaxed, and deeper and deeper and deeper asleep. You are in a deep sleep. You have no fear, no anxiety, and now you will not be troubled by anything you remember, but you will remember everything. You will remember everything, all your feelings and all your actions. This will not trouble you now, because they are here with us. They will not trouble you, and I am here. Now this repetition is to reinforce the instruction. It may or may not be needed. Your sleep is deeper and deeper. You are completely relaxed, far, far asleep, deeper and deeper asleep. Now you will remember everything that we have gone over about your trip from Montreal. You will go back a bit, before you had the experience with the eyes, and you can begin to tell me about the experience with the unidentified object. You can start a little before we left off. Wherever you feel, you freshly remember something. Barney. His voice is again flat and colorless. He is fully in a trance. I'm remembering being in the woods, parked, and I have Delsey, and I'm walking her around the back of the car, and Betty has asked if I would leave Delsey out. And Betty is standing off to the left of the car with the binoculars, and she is looking at this unidentified flying object, and I am standing there, looking up and down the highway, because I'm looking for other cars, and I give Betty the dog's chain, and I ask her to let me see with the binoculars, and I only see a plane, flying in the sky, and I tell her this is a plane, and it's on its way to Montreal, where we had just left, and I want to hurry and get back to the car, and return to Portsmouth. And Betty gets in the car, and she said, Isn't that strange? And I'm driving along, and she said, It's still out there. And I think it's strange, and think it must be a Piper Cub, and it's not making any sound, and I want to hurry up and get away, because this is strange. This strange thing flying around, and I believe very strongly that it can see us, and it is late at night, and I feel I am exposed. Doctor, in what way do you feel exposed? Barney, I feel I'm in an exposed situation where my car lights are very bright and it's dark where I am and I know this object is flitting around in the sky. I think of a fly flitting aimlessly in the sky with no pattern as it is hovering over something it is about to land on and I think this thing out there is just hovering around and Betty is telling me to stop again and I do and I said Betty what are you trying to do? Make me see something that isn't there? And I became very angry with her, because I think this is a plane, something that we can explain. And I believe, uh, rather feel, that she is trying to make me think it is not. And this irritates me. In his normal conversation, Barney seldom starts his sentences with and, and here, he seems to do so constantly, almost in a biblical style. Doctor, what was her reply to this? Barney. Betty's reply was, well, why is it doing what it's doing? Why doesn't it go away? What is it doing? Doctor, now this will not upset you. You can tell me your feelings. You will not be upset about it. Go ahead. Barney, I said, Betty, it can't... Uh, I was thinking... I, I did not say that to Betty. I was thinking. My mind was thinking. It cannot be a plane. Note the concern for truth and accuracy here again. 
making sure that he does not make any misstatements to the doctor. This is why I became upset because Betty was telling me it wasn't acting like any type of conventional flying craft. I somehow knew this and did not want to be told this. Doctor, did you feel that it wasn't acting like a conventional flying craft? Barney, yes, I did. Doctor, in what ways? Barney, well, it flew very oddly. It did not fly in a definite straight line. It would go up suddenly. And again, folks, this is something that's very common in UFO reports. Doctor, it would just rise vertically? Barney, just rise in a very straight up position, and then fly for a short while horizontally, and then it would dip down. And as it did this, I noticed that the row of lights on it seemed to tilt and level off, as I imagined the body of this thing, the position of this thing would be in. Doctor, as if it were banking? Barney, as if it were banking. But banking didn't fit. It doesn't seem to fit what I'm trying to describe. Because if it had banked, I could think of a plane. And no, it would be a plane. It just tilted. It did not bank in a swooping bank. It just, from a horizontal line, became a vertical line. Doctor, how would you describe the shape of it? Barney, I could not outline the shape. Doctor, an ordinary plane, even a Piper Cub, has to be somewhat cigar-shaped, even big helicopters. Barney, yes, the row of lights was like a row in a cigar-shaped pattern, only that it was a straight line that I saw, and it was elongated. Now, folks, many reports of UFOs around this time in the Air Force and NICAP files indicate a cigar-shaped object in the distance, but as it draws nearer, it becomes discernible as the lateral profile of a flying saucer or a large disc-shaped object. Doctor, you didn't surmise that this thing was round, like a so-called flying saucer? Barney, no, I didn't see that. Doctor, it did have some resemblance to ordinary planes then? Barney, at this time, yes. Doctor, you imply that it changed shape later? Barney, yes. As I continued down the highway, I had a peculiar feeling that it was spinning. Doctor, like a top? Barney, like a top. Doctor, now, when you spoke of this before, you spoke of some lights down the highway. Red lights, I believe. Does that ring any bells? Lights down the highway? As if some men were working down there? Barney, yes, but that is further on. Doctor, I see. Go on, then, in your own way. Barney, so I continued to look, and I would stop and leave and go, and Betty would insist that I stop, and we did this several more times. Doctor. Was this all to stop and look again? Barney, to stop and look. And when I can see the tramway on the mountain up ahead, and I knew where I was, and I knew I would eventually pass by the old man of the mountain, and the object seemed to have speeded up, and to go to the right side of the old man of the mountain, and I was going around the left side of the base, and when I got to where the old man of the mountain figure was, I stopped again and got a good look, and I knew that this object still seemed to be out there, and it was stopped when I stopped. I thought this was strange. His voice becomes more and more intense, as if he were watching what he describes. And it moved. Oh, oh, I did not see it move. I started driving the car, and Betty said it was moving behind the mountains again. And I was approaching a clear spot, where I saw two wigwams on my right. And I knew I was close to Indian Head. And I saw this object far off, even as I approached this spot by slowing down and looking. And then I returned to looking down the road to drive, and Betty became very excited. She said, Oh, Barney, you must stop the car. Look what it's doing. Notice how the doctor is encouraging the repetition of the story here, folks, 
to check for inconsistencies. And I became slower in my driving, and I looked through the windshield, and on her side, the object looked as if it were right out there in front of the windshield, only I had to look up to see it, and I must have been driving five miles an hour, because I had to put the car in low gear, so it would not stall. And I said, oh, this is funny. I thought of all the thoughts I had had since I first saw this thing. I thought it was a Piper Cub. I thought it was an airliner. I thought it was a military craft, and that the military was having fun with us. And I came to a complete stop, and I reached down to the floor of the car, to my left, and I picked up the tire wrench and kept it in my hand. Doctor, you had already got the wrench from the trunk of the car? Barney, yes, and I kept hold of it and stuck it through my belt, and I got out of the car with my binoculars, and I stood with my arm on the door, and my right arm partly on top of the hood, the roof of the car, and I looked, and before I could get the binoculars up to my eyes, even as I did get them up there, the car was vibrating from the motor running, so I stepped away, and the object shifted, in an arc, and I thought, how remarkable, it was a perfect arc, but it continued to have a forward look, facing me, as if it swung and did not move from a position, but just swung from a position, with the front facing me. Again, a typical pattern of many low-altitude UFO reports at that time. And it moved to my left, and I continued to look, and began walking towards the highway, shaking my head and blinking my eyes, that this was just some kind of something that I could not explain. Barney is now at the moment when he reached his emotional crisis in the first session, but he's calm now, not at all like he was then, partially due to the doctor's suggestion in the trance induction that he stay calm. And I hoped if I looked down the highway and looked back, it would be gone, and I continued to walk across the highway towards the front of my car down the road, and I continued to look with my binoculars each time. I would stop and look up, and I would walk further toward it and stop and look up, and I thought, how interesting. There is the military pilot, and he's looking at me, and I looked at him, and he looked at me, and there were several others looking at me, and I thought of a huge dirigible, and I thought of all the men lined up at a window of this large dirigible that were looking down at me. Then they moved to the back, and I continued to look at this one man that stood there, and I kept looking at him and looking at him. The contrast in his description here, steady and unemotional, compared to the previous session, is very noticeable. Doctor, is this the man you called the leader? Barney, he was dressed differently, and I thought of the Navy and the submarine, and I thought the men that moved back were just dressed in blue denims, but this other man was dressed in a black, shiny coat with a cap on. Doctor, when you spoke of the hoodlums back on your trip, did they wear these black, shiny coats that they often do? Barney, no, they did not. So, again, here you can see, folks, that the doctor's checking to see if there was any influence on Barney's mind from the Montreal experience. Could the echo of the hoodlums Barney saw be reflected in what he pictures here? Both represent potential danger, resulting in fear, which is the common denominator here. Doctor, there's no resemblance between them and this leader? Barney, no. The Canadian men in Montreal were dressed in conventional dress, but their hair was in a duckbill style, and I thought of them as hoodlums because of their hairstyle. Doctor, you can get back to this leader. Barney, I looked at him, and he looked at me, and I thought, this is not going to harm me and I wanted to get back to Betty and discuss this interesting thing we were looking at. And I kept looking, and he looked at me. And when I came back to the car, and Betty was flopping in the front seat, and I said, Betty, 
were you excited? And she said, why don't you come back? I was screaming for you to come back. I could not understand why you were going out across the road. Doctor, you hadn't heard her scream? Barney, no, I did not hear her scream, and I just thought she was flopping on the seat. But she said she had leaned down across the seat so that she would be able to be closer to open the door and holler for me to get back in the car. The reassurance at the beginning of the trance appears to have reduced the terror of this recollection considerably. I returned to the car and began driving down the highway, and I drove quite a few miles, and I noticed I was not on Route 3. Here, for the first time, the door to the forgotten time period begins to swing open. His block had always been on the field at Indian Head, followed by blurring of consciousness after he had begun to drive away from the object. Betty, also, had never been able to bridge this point, except, she thought, the possibility that her dreams might be reality. Barney, and I could not understand that, because it is a straight highway, and I looked, and I was being signaled to stop, and I thought, I wonder if there has been an accident. I do have the tire wrench. I'll put it near my hand. Doctor, let me interrupt again. What was it you saw down the highway? Barney, I saw a group of men, and they were standing in the highway, and it was brightly lit up, as if it was almost daylight, but not really day. It was not the kind of light of day, but it was brightly lit. Another description typical of many low-altitude UFO reports, including those of police officers and other technical individuals. And they began coming towards me, and I did not think after that of my tire wrench, and I became afraid. If I did think of this as a weapon, I would be harmed, and if I did not, I would not be harmed. And they came, and they assisted me. Doctor, who assisted you? Barney, these men. Doctor, they assisted you out of the car? Barney, I felt very weak. I felt very weak. But I wasn't afraid, and I can't even think of being confused. I'm not bewildered. I can't even think of questioning what is happening to me. And I'm being assisted. And I'm thinking of a picture I saw many years ago. And this man is being carried to the electric chair. And I think of this. And I think I am in this man's position. But I'm not being carried to the electric chair. And I think of this. And I think I'm in this man's position. But I'm not. But I think my feet are dragging, and I think of this picture, and I am not afraid. I feel like I am dreaming. This again was a denial of fear. Later, when Barney listened to the playback of the tapes, he likened this event to the feeling he had when he went into hypnosis with the doctor. The questions on his mind from then until the day he died would be, if this is true, was he being put into hypnosis by these men? And if so, was his amnesia caused by this? Doctor. Are you asleep at the time? Barney, my eyes are tightly closed, and I am disassociated. Doctor, disassociated? Is that what you said? Barney, yes. Doctor, checking Barney's definition, what do you mean by that? Barney, I am there, and I am also not there. Doctor, where is Betty through all of this? Barney, I don't know. I'm trying to think. Where's Betty? I don't know. Doctor, are these men part of your dream? Barney, Firmly and with conviction, they are there, and I am there. I know they are there, but everything is black. My eyes are tightly closed. I can't believe what I think. Doctor, is there anything else that you think you told me? Barney, yes. Doctor, you can tell me now. Barney, I'm always thinking of mental pictures because my eyes are closed, and I think I'm going up a slight incline, and my feet have stopped bumping on the rocks. That's funny. I thought of my feet bumping on the rocks and they are not going up smoothly, 
but I'm afraid to open my eyes, because I'm being told strongly by myself to keep my eyes closed, and don't open them, and I don't want to be operated on. Doctor, you don't want to be operated on? What makes you think of an operation? Barney, I don't know. Doctor, have you ever been operated on? Barney, only for my tonsils. Doctor, does this feel like that time? Barney, I think like that, but my eyes are closed, and I only have mental pictures, and I am not in pain, and I can feel a slight feeling. My groin, it feels cold. Doctor, is that like any feeling with the operation? Barney, I'm not being operated on. I am lying on something, and I think of the doctor putting something in my ear. When I was a boy, the doctor put something in my ear, and I looked up at it, and he explained to me that you could peek into the ear and light it up with this thing, and I think of that, and I feel like the doctor did not pain me, and I will be very careful, and be very still, and will cooperate, and I won't be harmed. Barney pauses. Doctor. Yes, go on. Barney. I can't remember. Doctor. You were thinking about this when you were on the road? Barney. I was thinking about this when I was lying on this table. Doctor. Where were you lying down? Barney. I thought I was inside something, but I did not dare open my eyes. I had been told to keep my eyes closed. Doctor. Who told you that? Barney. The man. Doctor. What man? Barney. That I saw through the binoculars. He speaks matter-of-factly, as if the doctor should certainly know all about this. Doctor, was this one of the men in the road? Barney, no. Doctor, these men in the road, what part did they play? Barney, they took me and carried me up this ramp. Doctor, carried you up the ramp? Barney, I know I was going up something, and my feet were dragging, and this man spoke to me, and I knew I had heard his voice, and he was looking at me when I was on the road. Doctor. What happened after you were in the road? Barney. This happened after I was in the road at Indian Head. I thought I had driven quite a distance from Indian Head when I got lost and found myself in the woods. Doctor. You got lost after Indian Head? Is that it? Barney. I was not on Route 3, and I couldn't understand why. Doctor. Was Indian Head before or after you saw the object? Barney. I don't understand the question. Doctor. Well, was it after you were at Indian Head that you saw the object? Barney, it was at Indian Head that I saw the object standing in the sky. And it is after Indian Head. I have driven several miles. I think I have driven a lot of miles. And the road is not Route 3, but it is a heavily wooded area. But it is a road, and this is when I am flagged down. Doctor, you are flagged down? Barney, yes. Doctor, these men flagged you down? Barney, yes. Doctor. How many were there? Barney, I thought I saw a cluster of six men, because three of them came to me, and three did not. Doctor, how were they dressed? Barney, I was told at the time to close my eyes, and I closed my eyes. Doctor, but before you closed your eyes, didn't you see them? Barney, they were all in dark clothing, and they were all dressed alike. Doctor, were they white men? Barney, I don't know by the color, but it did not seem... That they had different faces from white men. Doctor. Were they in a uniform of any sort? Barney. I thought of a navy pea jacket just before I closed my eyes. Doctor. Did they say anything else besides close your eyes? Did they tell you why they were stopping you? Barney. They didn't tell me anything. They didn't say anything. Doctor. Was there any vehicle around? Barney. I didn't see any. Doctor. 
You didn't see any vehicle? Barney, I was told to close my eyes because I saw two eyes coming close to mine. This may be the fragment in the first session where he thinks of a wildcat or the Cheshire cat. And I felt like the eyes had pushed into my eyes. Doctor, were these the same eyes of the leader that you saw from the binoculars? Barney, yes. Doctor, do you think it was the same man? Barney, I didn't think of anything. I didn't think of the man in the sky in the machine that I saw. I just saw these eyes, and I closed mine. His voice becomes rather odd each time he mentions the eyes. And I got out of the car, and I put my left leg on the ground, and two men helped me out. And I did not walk. I felt like I was being supported. And I did not go very far, I thought, before I felt I was going up, going up a ramp of some kind. My eyes were tightly closed, and I was afraid to open them. Barney pauses, and then, Oh, that doesn't say what I mean. Doctor, well, try again. Barney, I didn't want to open them. It was comfortable to keep them closed. Barney reflects the desire to shut out the experience. Doctor, were these men holding you up? Barney, they were by my side, and I had a funny feeling, because I knew they were holding me, but I couldn't feel them. Doctor, is this what you meant last time when you spoke of floating? Barney, I felt floating, suspended. I am thinking of getting out of the car, and I had not thought that these men, when they helped me out of the car, I could not feel them, and I only became aware that I could not feel them when we were going up an incline, and when I felt I could not feel them, my arms were in the position of being supported, but I was not walking, and I want to peek, I want to look, I want to look. This was the feeling in the first session, now clarified. Doctor. Yes, go on. This won't trouble you now. You can tell me. Barney, I opened my eyes. Doctor, you opened your eyes? What did you see? Barney, I saw a hospital operating room. It was pale blue, sky blue, and I closed my eyes again. Doctor, do you remember the operating room when you had your tonsils out? Barney, I remember the hospital, and I was in there because they thought I had appendicitis, and I stayed there for 13 or 14 no, it was 13 days. Again, note the insistence on absolute literal accuracy, even on irrelevant details. And I used to walk down the corridor and peek into the operating room, and I thought of that. It wasn't when I had my tonsils out. Doctor, was that operating room in the hospital blue? Barney, no, it was bright lights. Doctor, bright lights? Barney, bright lights, like electric bulbs. But this room was not like that. It was spotless. I thought of everything being so clean, and I closed my eyes. Doctor, did you feel you were going to be operated on? Barney, no. Doctor, did you feel you were being attacked in any way? Barney, no. Doctor, did you feel you were going to be attacked in any way? Barney, no. Doctor, you said your groin felt cold. Barney, I was lying on a table, and I thought someone was putting a cup around my groin, and then it stopped, and I thought, how funny. Doctor, speak a little louder, please. Barney, I thought, how funny. If I keep really quiet and real still, I won't be harmed. Again, that magical ritual, just like the rabbit. And it will be over, and I will just stay here and pretend that I am anywhere, and think of God, and think of Jesus, and think that I am not afraid and I am getting off the table, and I've got a big grin on my face, and I feel greatly relieved, and I'm walking, and I'm being guided, and my eyes are closed, 
and I open my eyes, and that is the car, and the lights are off, and the motor is not running, and Delzy is under the seat, and I reached under and touched her, and she is in a tight ball under the seat, and I sit back, and I see Betty is coming down the road, and she gets into the car, and I'm grinning at her, and she is grinning back at me, and we both seem so elated, and we are all really happy, and I'm thinking, it isn't too bad, how funny, I have no reason for fear, and we look, and I see a bright moon, and I laugh, and I say, well, there it goes, and I'm happy. Doctor, you mean the object was gone? Barney, yes. Doctor, it had gone. Barney, it was going. Doctor, going? Could you still see it? Barney, it was a bright, huge ball, orange. It was a beautiful, bright ball, and it was going, and it was gone, and we were in darkness, and I put on the lights of the car and looked down the road, and I thought, there is a bend in the road, and we began driving, and I could see a slight incline, and I drove, and I came back to Route 3, because I was on a cement road, and I thought, oh boy, if I could just find a restaurant and get a cup of coffee, and Betty and I feel... I feel really hilarious, like a feeling of well-being and great relief. Doctor, what were you relieved about? Barney, I'm relieved because I feel like I've been in a harrowing situation, and there was nothing damaging or harmful about it, and I feel greatly relieved. Doctor, and the flying object was gone? Barney, yes. Doctor, and it didn't come back? Barney, Betty is giggling, and she said, Do you believe in flying saucers now? And I said, oh, Betty, don't be ridiculous. Of course I don't. And we heard a beeping, and the car buzzed. Doctor, you heard a beeping? Barney, it was a beeping sound. Beep, 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 beep. Doctor, was your radio on? Barney, no, my radio was not on. It was so late, and I did not think I could get a station. So when I left Canada, I cut my radio off. I played my radio in Quebec, because I thought it was funny humorous to get the Canadian stations, and every word was spoken in French, and the music sounded different to my ears. When I left Montreal, I became determined to drive home, and I cut my radio off. I don't play my radio when I am driving. Doctor. Now, these beeps. You heard these beeps again. Did they sound like some of these beeps you get on a radio when you have code signals, or what did they sound like? Barney. Rapidly and sharply. Beep, beep, beep. They sound like beeps. Doctor, well, what did you do? What did you think about them? Barney, I thought it was strange, the beep, beep, beep. And at the first beep or two, I touched the steering wheel with my fingertips, because I thought I felt a vibration when I heard the beep. And as it continued, Betty looked to the back, and I slowed the car down and stopped. And I said to Betty, is there something shifting in the car? Doctor, did she say anything about hearing the beeps? Barney, she said, what is that noise? And we looked in the back, and Delzy had climbed up on the back seat, and her ears were popped up, and the beep, beep, beep. And we said, oh, oh, do you think that that thing is still around? And I called it a thing. Betty called it a flying saucer, and we had no answer. And we both thought, how strange. And I thought, that's very peculiar. I wonder if I can make the car do that. So I drove the car fast, and then would decelerate rapidly. And I swerved over to the left of the highway, and then back to the right and I came to a complete stop and accelerated rapidly, but I could not seem to get that sound, and we drove down the highway, and I saw the road for the expressway, 17 miles to Concord, and I drove to Concord and down Route 4. Doctor, did the beeping follow you there? Barney, no, I did not hear any more beeps. Doctor, 
after you got on the Concord Road? Is that it? Barney, no. I did not hear any beeps quite a distance before I reached the main highway, because Route 3 was also concrete, where I heard the beeping, and I heard it two times, when I got into the car, and when I returned to the car, and started down the highway, and I thought, what is that, Betty? And we did not hear it any more. Here he's referring back to Indian Head. Doctor, but she heard it too? Barney, she heard it too, and we did not hear it again until... We had been in the woods and had returned to Route 3, and she asked me did I believe in flying saucers, and I did not to want to say what I really believed. Doctor, what did you really believe? Barney, I believed that we had seen and been part of something different than anything I had ever seen before. Doctor, you mean also with the experience with these men in the operating room? Barney, yes. Doctor, did you fear you had been kidnapped? Barney, I didn't use that word. I can only use that word intellectually. I did not feel that I had been kidnapped, but I think of kidnapping when you are being harmed. Doctor. And you weren't harmed. Barney. No. Doctor. You had no idea of why this was done. Barney. I was anxious to get home and look at my groin. Doctor. You wanted to look at your groin, afraid that they had done something harmful? Barney. I wanted to look. I thought this is proof that something happened to me, and I was unsure and I would waver, feeling that it can't be, and then I would think, but it did happen, and I would think, when I get home and look at my groin, I will touch whatever touched me, and see if there is a mark, and this is what I thought. But this thought was completely gone when he reached his full consciousness. When he arrived home, he did examine himself, but he had no memory whatever of the reason why he did so. Doctor, all right, go on. Barney, I drove home and I walked into the house and I was too tired to bring in the luggage, and Betty got out of the car, and she took Delsey, and she let her relieve herself on the grass and brought her in, and I went into the bathroom, and I examined myself, and I saw nothing wrong, and I went into the bedroom, and I kept thinking that something is around me. I went to the window, and I looked up into the morning sky, and I went to the back door, and opened it, and looked up at the sky, and I thought, something is around somewhere, and Betty and I retired, talking. Wasn't that strange, whatever happened? And I could not remember anything that happened, except that I was at Indian Head. And I went to bed, and when we woke up, we decided we would not ever tell anyone, and would only talk about it to each other. And I said, But Betty, will you draw a picture of what you think you saw? And I will. And we drew pictures, and they were identical. And Betty called her sister, and told her sister. Doctor, you mentioned something about spots on the car. Barney. Betty came away from the telephone, and she said, Where is the compass? Where is the compass? And when Betty does that to me, I immediately get angry. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about, Betty. And she said, The compass, the compass, where's the compass? And I said, In the drawer, where it always is. And she got it, and I was irritated, because she got excited like this. She didn't think to open the drawer and find it. And she went out of the house, and I went to the bedroom window, which is the front window of our house. And I thought, this thing is getting the best of Betty, and we'd better forget this as soon as possible, and stop remembering it. And she stormed into the house and said, Barney, come here, come here quick. And I walked out, and I looked at the compass when she placed it by the car. And I said, oh, this is ridiculous, Betty. After all, the car is metal, and any metal will attract and cause a compass to react this way. And she said, look what it does, and look at the spots on my car. And I looked, and there was large spots 
shiny spots on the trunk of the car. And I thought, what caused that? And I started to wipe one off. And she said, don't touch it. And I said, how can you know if it isn't anything? And then I put the compass close to it. And the compass would spin and spin. And I could move the compass a few inches to a spot, to a part of the trunk that did not have a spot, and the compass would drop down. And I could not understand this. And I knew I did not know anything about compasses. And I told Betty, it is nothing at all. The compass is a cheap compass. It is nothing to get alarmed about. Doctor, what gave her the idea of getting the compass? Barney, I did not know at that time. Doctor, what did you find out? Barney, she told me later that while she was talking with her sister, her sister had suggested that she get a compass and check and see if the car was magnetized or something or other, and this is why she... Doctor, you say these spots made a compass needle spin? Barney, when we would place a compass anywhere but on the spots, the needle would just flop down. Doctor, you say these were shiny spots. What do you mean by that? Were there changes in the color of your car, or dust removed, or what? Barney, highly polished. Doctor, as if the car had been highly polished? Barney, yes, in those spots. Doctor, how big were they? Barney, about the size of half dollars, silver dollars. Doctor, did you try to remove them, or did you try to wipe the rest off the car? Barney, I never bothered with the spots. Doctor, was the rest of the car dusty? Barney, yes, it was. Doctor, and you didn't try to polish it out and see if it would duplicate those spots? Barney, there had been a rain. It rained the afternoon and evening after they arrived back in Portsmouth. And where the rain had washed some of the dust off, the shiny spots were still there, and I didn't try to dust them off. Doctor, could these spots have been caused by the raindrops hitting and taking the dust off? Barney, no. The spots were shiny and in perfect circles. Doctor, well, what did you do? Just leave the spots? Barney, I did. Doctor, did you wash or polish your car at some reasonable time afterwards? Barney. That was Betty's car, and she washes her car. I suppose she did. I didn't pay any more attention. Doctor. So you don't know how long those spots stayed then? Barney. I shut them out. I I don't know. I just stopped thinking about those spots. Doctor. You don't know when they disappeared, or did they? Barney. Yes, they're gone. Doctor. All right. We'll stop with this now. You will no longer think about what we talked about today, until I ask you to recall it. It will not trouble you at all. The eyes will not trouble you. You will not even think about them. Everything is comfortable. Everything is relaxed. No need for anxiety. And nothing to worry about. Is that clear? Barney. Yes. Doctor. You are comfortable, aren't you? Barney. Yes, I am. Doctor. And relaxed. And you are not worrying. And you will not worry. Everything will be all right. And you and Betty will come back a week from today. Just as you did today. You feel all right now? Here the doctor is doubly assuring Barney that he will not have the same problems he had during the week before. Barney. Yes, I do. Doctor. You are very comfortable. You will not worry at all. It is not going to affect your mind. It's an experience we'll talk about more. Get it all cleared up. So you will have no fear. No anxiety. You will not think about this. It will not come to you anymore. Anything we talked about in these sessions, you will not think about. It will not trouble you. You'll be comfortable and relaxed. No pains, no aches, no anxiety. You'll be all right. Barney, yes. Doctor, you may wake now. Barney immediately wakes, feeling calm and refreshed. He has no memory, whatever, of what has gone on during the session.
During the start of this session on February the 29th, Barney was not certain if the doctor was going to go along with his request to take Betty and give him a rest after the reaction he had had to the first session. In fact, he half expected at the moment he went into the trance that the doctor was merely doing it for the purpose of reinforcing him for further treatment. When he looked at his watch at the end of the second session, he was totally surprised to find that it was nearly 10 a.m., almost two hours later. He was even more startled at this because although he had reached the point where he could accept the loss of contact with any sense of time for an hour or so, he was sure that he would have some consciousness of a lapse of time that long. He felt very relaxed and comfortable as he came out of the trance and thought that he could remember talking about everything up to Indian Head, even within the trance. He seemed vaguely to be aware of the doctor's voice, but there was no clear remembrance of this. Actually, Barney would later say, I did not have any recall as to the actual sessions under hypnosis, but I seemed to develop a tremendous recall apart from the sessions of hypnosis, as if suddenly I could say, Betty, do you know the color of the rug at the motel we stayed at before we got to Montreal? It was pale blue, things of that sort, and tying the dog to the radiator in the laboratory. I could remember things like that. Also, I remembered consciously, that is, details of all the route numbers we had traveled, and after the second session I recalled that we stopped at this quaint farmhouse-type restaurant before Montreal, and the picture that came to my mind was so vivid. It was very quaint and attractive, lovely, large fireplace, the side of the entire wall was a fireplace. We had a delightful breakfast there on our trip, the kind you would feed lumberjacks, large chunks of ham, three or four eggs if you wanted them. The picture came back so sharply. In other words, the picture of the conscious part of the trip was sharpened, even though I had no idea what I had said about the missing segment. Then, after the second session, I began having dreams. I had peculiar dreams, where I began dreaming about UFOs for the first time in my life, and I read a book about a doctor in a concentration camp in Germany who was in great distress, and I began to picture him as Dr. Simon, and this made the book acutely distressing to me, because somehow, Dr. Simon had become sort of a close friend. He had become more than a close friend. He had become someone I loved, and I didn't want any harm to come to him. With the second session over, Dr. Simon reviewed the case in the first real light that had been thrown on the amnesiac period. The case was breaking down into two separate phases, the first encounter, which was described as happening at Indian Head, and the second encounter, which apparently took place in a wooded section of a road off Route 3, involving a roadblock, and the bizarre description of an abduction aboard a spaceship. The evidence revealed in the two sessions with Barney seemed to indicate that he had undergone a severe emotional upheaval with an experience with an unidentified object, either real or interpreted by him to be real. The second experience, the abduction, had much less support from established reports of the UFO phenomena and had to be considered as far less probable or unreal. Much more data would have to be available to weigh the scales convincingly as far as this was concerned. At this stage of the treatment, it appeared that part, or all of the first encounter, could be real. The second encounter had no valid precedent at this time of 1964 and appeared to be unreal, consequently reflecting back to the first experience before proceeding further with Barney, Dr. Simon decided to begin with Betty and probe her recall. The doctor was working with facts, data, and logical conjecture, which he would test and add new data to, to confirm or reject as he went along. 
A physician must be skeptical, but should have some working hypothesis to help evaluate the material revealed. The doctor was not interested in the UFO aspect per se, except as an integral part of the Hill's experience. His presumption as he prepared to continue with Betty Hill on the following week was that the first encounter could have happened. The second encounter was highly unlikely. On her way into her first session, Betty Hill found herself actually looking forward to the experience. She had sat through two long sessions waiting for Barney, with some discomfort. She could not imagine herself getting as emotional as the first confused noises she had overheard during Barney's first session seemed to indicate, which she still had not even mentioned to him. At Dr. Simon's office on March the 7th, 1964, the procedure was reversed. Barney was reinforced, and Betty remained in the office for the session to begin. She was not sure whether the doctor would put her into a trance or conduct a conscious interview. She had with her in her pocketbook a copy of the paper she had written out describing her dreams in vivid detail. Driving in with Barney, she asked if she should show them to the doctor, but Barney suggested that she wait until the doctor asked for them. Barney's feelings about Betty's dreams was always one of extreme discomfort. He didn't like to think about them. He didn't approve of Betty's preoccupation with them, and he didn't believe that they had any basis in reality. Although he had not directly told Betty, he didn't want Dr. Simon to be influenced by her dreams. Consequently, the detailed description of the dreams remained in Betty's pocketbook as she prepared for her session. She distinctly later remembered hearing the cue words as they were spoken by the doctor at her first long session on March the 7th. When he said them, Betty later recalled, it was always with the feeling of complete surprise to me. It's like suddenly someone slaps you. He says the words, and whatever you're doing immediately stops. I was in the middle of putting a cigarette out and was conscious for a brief moment that I was trying to do this, and I couldn't do it. I actually think when you're going into a trance, you just don't immediately go. It's like going to sleep, sort of like drifting. You slide into it. I think you really couldn't stop yourself, even if you tried. Betty heard the words distinctly, but almost immediately, she thought, she heard the words from the doctor. You may wake up, Betty. In between the phrases for over an hour, Betty re-experienced in full detail the incident at Cannon Mountain. What she revealed would not be known to her for many weeks later. Doctor. Her eyes close, her head nods. You are in a deep, deep sleep. Deep asleep. Fully relaxed and far asleep. Very comfortable. Fully relaxed. Deep asleep. Far asleep. Deep, deep sleep. With the repeated reinforcement of the induction, she has experienced over the weeks, this was all that was required to put her into that trance state. Now we're going to go back. Back to your vacation in September of 1961, as you were coming from Niagara Falls to Montreal. You will remember what you did, and you will recall everything. All your experiences, all of your memories, all of your feelings. And you will give me all of this in full detail. Now, you're coming from Niagara Falls to Montreal. You're on your way home from vacation. Now tell me all that you experienced, all that you felt, you and your husband. Betty. Her voice is less monotonous compared to Barney's flat and vacant tone, but she is in a deep trance, as he was. We're driving along, and the streets were wide. The sun was shining. There were quite a few people in the streets, and I was looking at the houses, and the stores and windows. She speaks, however, with longer pauses, as if she waits for the scene to pass by her eyes before she relates it. 
We stopped at a gas station to get directions, and the attendant spoke French and couldn't understand us, so we went to another garage, and they told us how to get back into the center of Montreal, and I saw a mink coat in the window for $895. Then we decided we'd find a hotel, but then we didn't know if they'd allow Delzy to be in the hotel, so then we thought we'd look for a motel somewhere outside of Montreal, and we passed a place with a sign, I thought said potato fritters, and the woman in this little drive-in restaurant came out and started speaking in French, and I said, I don't understand French, and she kept saying she was sure I was French, but I'm not, and then I found out it wasn't potato fritters, it was potato chips, so we had the potato chips and coffee, and I can't remember if I had a hot dog or a hamburger or one of each. Again, note the struggle to remember every small detail, even if not significant. If she were instructed to, she could remember. Also, different details of the trip were selected for description by Betty than Barney chose to relate. She continues with her description of the basic story of the trip down through Canada to Colebrook and then on to Lancaster, her story paralleling Barney's account of this portion of the journey. And then, and we kept driving and looking around. The moon was bright, but not quite full, but very bright and large. And there was a star down below the moon on the lower left-hand side of the moon. And then right after we left Lancaster, I noticed that there was like a star, a bigger star up over this one, and it hadn't been there. And I showed Barney, and we kept watching it. It seemed to keep getting brighter and bigger looking, and we watched it for quite a while, and I was puzzled by it, also curious, and while I was watching it, Delzy was getting somewhat restless, and then we went by a mountain that obstructed the view, and when I got to where I could see the star again, I thought it had moved. Again, Betty Hill rarely begins her sentences in ordinary conversation with and, yet, like Barney, she persistently does so while in a trance. But I wasn't quite sure, so I kept watching it, and it seemed so it did move, and Delzy was restless, so I told Barney we should let Delzy out, and it would give us a chance to look at this star through the binoculars. We drive along, and we came to a parking space off the highway. One of I got out of the car and put, let's see, yes, I got out of the car and I put Delzy on her leash, and we started to walk her, and I noticed that the star was definitely moving. So I went back to the car and got out the binoculars, and Barney took Delzy, and I was looking through the binoculars at the object, and Barney was saying it was a satellite, but it wasn't. It was moving fast, but it went in front of the moon, and I saw it. I saw it travel across the whole face of the moon, and it was Doctor, doctor like those lights you see on police cars? Betty, no, you know what a searchlight looks like. Doctor, yes, Betty, and how it's sort of in a pencil line of light and it swings around. They were like that. Doctor, you could see those long beams? Betty, of white, and then they were different colors. Doctor, were they usual colors that you know, or were they... Betty, yes, they were bright colors, like a bright orange light, almost a reddish beam. And there was like a blue, well, you said like a light on a police cruiser, you know. It was something like that, because when the cruiser lights turn around somehow, and it flashes... Even though they seem to come out into a ray thing somehow, all these different kinds of lights seem to be that same. Flash, flash, flash. Doctor, there were colors other than red, amber, and green? The doctor is referring to conventional lights used in the U.S. on planes, vehicles, and for traffic control. Betty, like a blue and like a flash, 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 flash. 
and I had never seen anything like it before, and it was moving quite fast, but I've never seen a satellite. But I've always thought of a satellite as traveling almost like a shooting star. Maybe not quite as fast, but this wasn't traveling that fast. Well, when I saw it go in front of the moon, I was sort of fascinated, and I kept watching, but then I tried to get Barney to look. I wanted him to see it before it got away from the face of the moon, but he kept saying, Oh, it's a satellite. Doctor, are you referring to Telstar or Echo, that sort of thing? Betty, yes, and Barney said it was just a satellite, and he was over by the car, and by the time he got back, it had gone from in front of the moon, but he did look at it, and then he looked at it for a few seconds and gave the binoculars back to me. Doctor, you said it had an odd shape, did you? Betty, yes. Doctor, how would you describe the shape? Round? Shaped like anything you know? A plane? Betty, no, not like a plane. All I could think of, uh, like a cigar. Doctor, like a cigar? Betty, yes. It was long and there weren't any wings. And it was going sideways, you know, like a cigar. It was going from the left to the right. It was just like holding a cigar up in front of the moon, with all these lights flashing around it. So then Barney looked at it, and I took the binoculars and looked again, and gave them back to him. And then I went over and put Delsey in the car, and got in the car myself and shut the door. And then Barney came over and got in the car, and he said, They've seen us, and they're coming this way. And I laughed, and asked him if he had been watching Twilight Zone recently on TV, and he didn't say anything. Doctor, why did you mention Twilight Zone? Betty, because the idea was fantastic. Doctor, had there been anything like this on Twilight Zone? Betty, I don't know. I never see Twilight Zone. But I had heard people talk about this program, and I always was under the impression that it was a way out type of thing. And so when he said that they had seen us, and that they were swinging around and coming in our direction, I thought his imagination was becoming overactive. Doctor, did he have binoculars at the time? Betty, I left him standing on the edge of this parking area, looking at the thing when I took Delsey, and she and I got in the car, and I sat down and waited for him to finish looking, and this is when he came back and said that it had turned around and was coming towards us. Doctor, did you look to see if it was doing that? Betty, not at that moment. I thought this was sort of, I don't know, well, Barney kept saying that it was headed towards us, so I thought, well, I don't know what gave him this idea, but I was beginning to get a little curious why he felt this. So I picked up the binoculars, and at first I couldn't find it. I couldn't find the object, but then I did see it, and I could see it was getting closer to us, and it was coming in, and it was still far, far away, and even when it was coming in, it still looked like a star. It was a solid, light type of thing, and then, when I would take the binoculars down and look at it, it was just like a star coming in closer. Again, this is an echo of many more reports in NICAP and Air Force files around this time. But then when I looked at it through the binoculars, it would, of course, appear to be much bigger. But it was flying in a very odd way, and this is what I was all excited about. Doctor, what do you mean by odd way? Betty, well, you know how an airplane flies along in a straight line? It wasn't flying like that. It was turning. It was rotating, and it would go along in a straight line for a short, just a short distance, and then would tip over on its side and go up. Doctor. Well, let's see. It was shaped like a cigar, you say? Betty. Yes. Doctor. Did it fly like it was a cigar going along? Like an arrow? Betty. This is the way it looked. Doctor. When it tipped over, what did it do? How did it tip? Betty. Well, all right. 
You take a cigar and you lay it flat on the desk. Now you stand the cigar up on one end, right straight up and down. This is what this did. And in the meanwhile, it gave the appearance of spinning all the time. As we have mentioned, other reports of this nature indicate that the cigar shape, as in Barney's case, is an indication of a disc that is being seen in profile. Doctor, was it turning on the long axis? Betty, yes. It would go along straight, and then it would suddenly go right up straight, and then it would flatten horizontally, and then it would drop down straight. This seemed to be the overall pattern. It wasn't done in an exactly precise way. It would jerk out. It would flatten out. So it was sort of... It wasn't smoothly done. And as they got closer, they seemed to be more of the jumping back and forth in the sky. And then it followed us for a long time. And Barney was driving. And I was watching this almost completely. And the way it was flying, I thought maybe it was the vibrations of the car that were causing it to look this way. Doctor. You mean this jumping effect? Betty. Yes. I thought maybe the vibrations of the car was giving the effect. And so I keep asking Barney to stop the car and look at it. And he would stop and say he couldn't see it flying this way. Well, I could. And so then I would look at other objects, like a star, to see if it would give this appearance. And it wouldn't. I kept trying to figure it out. I kept saying, nothing flies like this. So it's something I'm doing to make this idea that it's flying like this. Everything else I looked at was all right. It didn't jump around. It was just this one object. We kept staring and stopping and looking at it, and we would drive along. Now when we got to Cannon Mountain, this is where the tramway is. Doctor, he needs to make an adjustment to the tape recorder. All right, we'll stop there now. You will not hear anything further until I speak to you again. You will be perfectly at ease. He completes the adjustment. All right, Betty, continue now where you left off. She continues at exactly that point. Betty, we came to the tramway at Cannon Mountain and there's a lighted area at the top. I think the lights might have been from a restaurant, and as I was watching, the lights went out. Most of us by now know there are many reports of electrical disturbances by UFOs, including lights, auto ignition, headlights, radio, and television cutting out. I don't know if it went down in the valley between the two mountains, or if it turned its lights off, and this puzzled me because I kept looking for it, and then I thought, well, maybe they're going away. They aren't interested in us. But then we came out by Old Man of the Mountain, and there it was. But it looked almost as if it were bouncing along the top of the mountain, the ridge, and it would go down a little bit on the other side, and I would lose sight of it. And I kept wondering why they were following us. And I would, I would figure that I was wondering if they were as curious about me as I was about them. Doctor, you speak of they? Betty, I mean, well, I figured there must be somebody inside of this object. You know, someone directing its flight. And so whoever was inside, this is they. I was very curious, and I had the feeling that someone might be there. And they saw us in a way. It was all very intriguing, and I didn't know what was going to happen. But I wasn't afraid. I was just curious, and I just had a feeling that something is going to happen, and I don't know what it is, and I hope I won't be too afraid when it does happen. And so we kept riding along, and we stopped at one place. There was too many trees. We lost sight of it there. When we got to the flume, Barney drove in on the parking area on the right-hand side, and we stopped there and tried to really get a good look at it again. But there were too many trees there too. But we would go along, and there would be areas where we could get. It would be fairly clear. And then we went past the flume, somewhere between the flume and Indian Head, or it was just beyond the flume, or just beyond Indian Head. There was a motel. It was like cabins. 
these small, neat-looking cabins, and the sign itself wasn't lighted, but there was one cottage on the end that had a light on, and there was a man standing in the door, and I saw this, and I thought, if I want to, I can get out of this whole situation right now. All we have to do is drive in here, and this object will go away, and that will be the end of it. I mean, this is our escape from it, if I want this, and I was thinking this, and I didn't say anything to Barney. I didn't say anything. All I could think of was, I don't know where we're going, but I'm ready for it, and Barney was sort of irritating me, because he wanted to. His whole attitude was that I was trying to wish something on him. I got the impression that he was trying to deny what was actually happening, that he didn't want to know that it was there, even though he could stop and look at it. He didn't have any realization of what was going on. Now it was fairly close, and I could see that it wasn't spinning, because I could see that there were lights on one side, and this gave it a blinking and twinkling effect, but then all of the sudden, it stopped doing this, and I got the idea that there were lights only on one side, and then all of a sudden, the object shot ahead of us, and swung around in front of the car. Well, I was watching it when it did this, and it was on my side of the windshield, directly in front of me, and I looked at it through the binoculars, and I could see a double row of windows. And then, as I was watching it, I was thinking this side has the windows, and the back of it must be dark. And this is why it twinkles. And while I'm sitting there, I'm amazed by all of this. Then, all of a sudden on one side, on the left-hand side, a red light came out. And then, on the right-hand side, a light came out. Doctor, you say left and right-hand side? Betty, I was facing the object. Doctor, you're looking through the windshield? Betty. I was looking through the windshield, right up at it. Doctor, how far away would you say it was? Betty, oh, I couldn't estimate. You couldn't see it too clearly without the binoculars. I could see a band of light without them, and when I saw the second red light, I kept telling Barney to stop. Stop the car, Barney, and look at it. And he kept saying, oh, why, it's nothing. It'll go away. And I kept saying, Barney, you've got to stop. Stop the car, Barney, and look at it. It's amazing. And he said, Oh, he was going to humor me. So he said, Oh, all right, give me the binoculars. And he looked at it, and I kept saying, Do you see it? Do you see it? And he said, It's just a plane or something. And I kept saying, Okay, it's a plane. Did you ever see a plane with two red lights? I thought planes had one red and one green light. And he kept looking at it, and then he gave the binoculars back to me. And I'd watch it, and then he said he couldn't see very well. He opened the car door. No, first, he put down the window in the car door, and he tried to stick his head out and look up over the roof of the car at it. Betty's voice has become increasingly animated now, but still quite matter-of-fact. But the motor of the car was running, and he said, well, he got out. He opened the car door, and he stepped out. He put one foot on the highway, and one was inside the car. And he was standing with the car door open, but he was leaning against the body of the car. He kept looking at it. And then, he didn't say anything. He just stepped outside. And he stepped outside, and he kept going away from the car. And I thought, well now, this isn't a very bright place for us to have stopped the car, because we're right on the main highway. We're not on the right side, or the left side. We're right directly in the middle. And there should be traffic on the highway. So I thought, well, while he's out getting a good look at this, I'll watch if any cars come in either direction, in case I have to get the car out from the middle of the street. So I'd look out the back window and out the front window, and it seems as though I sat there and sat there, waiting and waiting, and Barney didn't come back. And I was sitting there waiting. And I'd look. It was dark there. 
There weren't any street lights or anything. I noticed when I looked out, he was quite a distance from the car, and he was still going away from the car. Now for the first time, emotion begins to come into Betty's voice. Oddly enough, it occurs at just about the same time and place that Barney's intense, emotional outburst occurred. So uh, I leaned over the front seat, and I was saying, Barney, come here. But her voice breaks in emotion. She begins to sob as she speaks. Barney, you damn fool, get back here. Barney, come back. She's reliving the incident now, calling directly to Barney, rather than describing it. If that damn fool doesn't come back, I'm going after him. Barney, what's wrong with you? And I'm calling Barney, 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 get back here. What's wrong with you? Now back to description, but still breathless. I, I started to slide. I was going to get out his side of the car because that door was open all the way. I, I started to slide across the seat because I was going to go out and get him. Just as I started to slide and I got the door most of the way open, he came to the car. He was running like mad down the street. And when I heard him coming, I sat up. I was lucky I did. Afterwards, because he threw the binoculars in the car and they landed on the seat beside me. He was hysterical. And now she almost is. He, 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 he was, I don't know, if he was laughing or crying, but he was saying that they were going to capture us. We had to get the hell out of there. They were going to capture us because the car motor was running. He put the car into first and he stepped on the gas and we started to take off very rapidly. He kept saying to me, look out, look out. You can see them. They're right overhead. They're right directly over our car. And so I did want to see them again. And I was sort of afraid, but I wasn't that afraid. And so we were moving. We were going quite fast then. And so I wound down. I turned down the window on my side of the car. And I tried to put my body out through the window and look at it. And I kept looking and looking. And I couldn't see them. I couldn't see the light. I couldn't even see the sky. I couldn't see anything. And so I told Barney, I don't think they're out there. I don't see anything. It's all black. I don't see them. So then I pulled my head in. And I wound up the window of the car. And I thought, well... Maybe they're out the back, because I kept looking for the lights, and I looked out the back window, and I didn't see anything, and then all of a sudden there was this beep, 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 and Barney says, what's that, what's that, what's that noise? And I said, I don't know, all I could think of is some kind of electrical signal, you know, beep, 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 beep. Now Betty is rather matter-of-fact in her tone, analyzing what this might possibly be all about. I wondered, oh darn. Why didn't I learn the Morse code? Because maybe this is the Morse code. And I don't know it. Then I thought maybe it's electrical. Maybe it's a shock. So I put my hand on the metal of the car. And I kept feeling and feeling. And I didn't feel a shock. No kind of electrical shock. But the whole car was vibrating, you know? Little vibrating. And I thought, well, that's funny. The, the, there was no, well, I don't know. There was a beeping and, and there wasn't any electrical shock. What happened next? The sharpness of detail of Minutia leaves her at the same point in time and location as with Barney. She continues to speak, but in puzzlement, as if she is probing, searching for lost memory. We're, we're riding along, and I kept waiting for Barney to tell me about what he saw on the highway. She stops talking. Her groping at this point is unavailing. Doctor, after waiting a considerable length of time. How long would you say he was away from you when he was out on the highway? Actually, how long was it? Betty. Oh, it seemed a long time. Doctor. Well, how long was it? Betty. I don't know. I would say for some reason, I don't know why. I would say four or five minutes. Doctor. Four or five minutes. Betty. Yes, 
I don't remember looking at my watch, and it was dark anyway, and I heard the beeping sound. Doctor, did you see this object anymore? Betty, I kept trying to see it. Every once in a while, I would look out the window for it, but my mind's blank. Another pause. She's groping. But I can almost remember... Doctor, yes, you can. Betty, she is obviously straining to remember. Right at this point, I can't get beyond that beeping. Nor could Barney at this point. Doctor, you can. It's all right now. You can get beyond it. Now a very long pause. Betty is breathing heavily, but she makes no other sound. Yes, go on. It's all right. Now Betty begins to cry, in short, rapid sobs, as if she were trying to hold herself back. All right. You needn't be too upset. Betty. Another long pause. Then she draws a sharp breath, as if she has made a forced resolution in her mind. She speaks very rapidly, breathlessly, as if she doesn't want to say this. We're driving along. I don't know where we are. I, I don't even know how we got here. Barney and I, we were driving. I, I don't know how long. I don't know how long. The words come out between short, sharp sobs. And, and we haven't even been talking. I, I've just been sitting here, feeling that something is going to happen, and I'm not really too afraid, except right now I am. At the time, I didn't feel afraid. She stops talking and then cries. Doctor, after a long pause. Why are you crying if you're not afraid? Betty. I'm afraid now, but but I wasn't. I, I don't. I wasn't. I wasn't afraid. I was afraid when I saw the men in the road. Doctor. Men in the road? Betty. Now she breaks out with an anguished cry. I've never been so afraid in my life before. Doctor. Very calmly. Tell me about the men in the road. It's all right now. Betty. She begins to say something, but she is sobbing too much to get it out. Doctor, you're safe here. Tell me about the men in the road. Betty, her voice is trembling, her breath is rapid. We're, we're driving along, we're, we're on a tarred road, and all of a sudden, without any warning or rhyme, or reason or anything, Barney made a, he, he always, the brakes squealed, he stopped, so suddenly, and made the sharp left hand turn off the highway, and, and we went onto this narrow road. I was wondering what he was doing to turn down here. He wasn't saying anything, and, and I wasn't either. So I figured, well, maybe we're lost, but so what? We'll come out somewhere. She's having difficulty in speaking. And and we're going along, and, and there was a sharp curve. There there were trees. There were a lot of tall trees on my side. I didn't know about Barney's side of the road. Again, note the desire for complete accuracy in her reporting. But but there were these men standing in the highway, and I wasn't too afraid when I saw them. They they were standing there, and I thought, well, you know, they weren't so awful. There was, oh, I don't know, and they were just, I wasn't too afraid when I saw them. And, and they were just, uh, I couldn't get a good look at them. She reflects a moment, and then, but, but then I thought, well, they in a car? A broken down car? What are they doing here? And Barney, of course, had to stop. And then he stopped the car, and these men started to come up to the car. They separated. They came in two groups. And when they started to do that, I got really scared. And the car motor died. The car stalled. And then they started to come towards us. A brief pause, and then... And, and when they started to do that, I got really scared. And the car motor died. The car stalled. And when they started to come up to us, Barney tried to start the car. And you know how a motor of the car will just turn over and won't fire? He couldn't start the car. He couldn't start the car! She bursts into tears again. The last words are muffled. Doctor, he did what? Betty, he tried to start the car, and it wouldn't start, and the men are coming towards us, and I thought, well, I can get away from them if I get the car door open, 
I can run into the woods and hide. And I'm thinking of that. And I just put my hand on the car door to open it. And the men come up and they open it for me. She sobs profusely. And they open the car door. And this, this man, two men behind us and, and... Her words are again muffled by her crying. Doctor, I didn't hear that. Betty, trying to get herself under control. Two, two men at the car door. And there's one, two, three men. And there's, there's one, two more behind them. And one man puts his hand out. She stops again. Doctor, go on. Betty, a long pause of deep breathing. I, I don't know what happens. Doctor, you can remember everything now. What do these men look like? Did you see their faces? Betty, no. Doctor, how were they dressed? Betty, alike. Somehow or other. More sobbing, a little more controlled. Doctor, do they have a uniform on or ordinary clothes? Betty, more like a uniform. Doctor, a uniform. Did it resemble any uniform you already know? Betty, I couldn't say. And she lapses into silence again. Doctor, he waits a considerable length of time and then, All right, your memory is very sharp. You needn't be worried. You remember everything now. Tell me what happened. Another long pause. What are you thinking now? Betty, I'm thinking I'm asleep. Doctor, you're asleep in the car? Betty, this is the same point at which Barney became vague and diffuse, when he felt he was floating about when he saw the eyes. I'm thinking I'm asleep. I'm asleep and I've got to wake up. I don't want to be asleep. I keep trying. I've got to wake myself up. I try and I go back again. I keep trying. I keep trying to wake up. Long pause and then, then I do. I open my eyes and I'm walking through the woods. And I just open my eyes quick, and I shut them again. She begins sobbing intensely. But even though I'm asleep, I'm walking. And there's this man on this side, and a man on this side. And there's two men in front of me. And I look all around, and it's a path, and there's trees. More words come out, but the sobbing completely obscures them. And, and I look at these men, and I turn around. Barney's behind me. She stops short again. Doctor, Barney's behind you? Betty. There's a couple of men behind me, and then there's Barney. There's a man on each side of him, and my eyes are open, but Barney's still asleep. He's walking, and he's asleep. Betty is still sobbing, but then gets under control. And then, and then I begin to get mad, and I say to myself, Who the heck are these characters, and what do they think they're doing? And I turn around and I say, Barney, wake up, Barney, why don't you wake up? And he doesn't pay any attention. He keeps walking, and going a little bit further. And I turn around, and I say his name again. Barney, wake up. And he still doesn't pay attention. And then the man walking besides me here says, Oh, is his name Barney? And that's where I looked at this man, and I figured it's none of his business, so I didn't speak to him. And we keep walking, and I try to wake Barney up again. I keep saying, Barney, Barney, wake up. And he doesn't. So the man asks me again, Is Barney his name? And I wouldn't answer him. So he says, He said, Don't be afraid. You don't have any reason to be afraid. We're not going to harm you, but we just want to do some tests. When the tests are over with, we'll take you and Barney back and put you in the car. You'll be on your way back home in no time. I mean, he was, he was sort of reassuring in a way, but I can't say I trust what he said. And I wasn't sure what was going to happen. And we just keep walking and walking, and Barney was still asleep. Although she has her sobs under control, they're still punctuating all of this. Doctor, you mean he was walking in his sleep? Betty, yes, he was like sleepwalking. Doctor, these men spoke good English? 
Betty. Only one spoke, the one who was on my left. Then he was more or less, he had an accent. He had sort of a foreign accent, but he was, you know, very businesslike. So then we kept walking, and we came to a clearing, and there was, I wish it was lighter so I could get a better picture of it. There was a ramp to the door. The object was on the ground. She pauses. Doctor. The object was on the ground? Betty. Very matter-of-factly now. I think it was the same one I was watching in the sky. And there were trees and a path. And there was this clearing. And they're taking me up to the object. I don't want to go on it. I don't want... I don't know what's going to happen if I do. I don't want to go. Barney's no protection. He's sound asleep. And I don't want to go on it. Doctor. He's sound asleep? What's he doing? Walking along? Or was somebody supporting him? Betty. Yes. There's a man on each side. One has each arm, and they're sort of, well, he's sort of, his eyes are shut, and he doesn't hear anything I say, but he's standing on his own two feet, but he's in a daze, and they're sort of directing him, helping him along, and he's quite a bit taller than the men. Doctor. He's taller than the men? Betty. Yes. Yes, he's way above them. So when we get to the object, I don't want to go on, and so the man beside me says, to go on. He's a little angry with me. He says, oh, go on. The longer you fool around out here, the longer it's going to take. You might as well go on and get it over with and get back to your car. We haven't got much time either. So he and one of the others each take my arm, and I get sort of a helpless feeling. There's not much I can do at this point but to go with them. I go on up the ramp. I go inside, and there's a corridor to the left. We go up the corridor, and there's a room, and they stop to take me in the room. She's calmer now, much calmer. I'm standing in the doorway and I turn around, and I'm waiting for them to bring Barney in. But they don't do this. They lead Barney right past the door, where I'm standing. So I said, what are you doing with Barney? Bring him in here where I am. And the man said, no, we only have equipment enough in one room to do one person at a time. And if we took you both in the same room, it would take too long. So Barney will be all right. They're going to take him in the next room. And then as soon as we get through testing the both of you, then you will go back to your car. You don't have to be afraid. And so I watch them take Barney into the next room. And I go into this room, and some of the men come in from the room with this man who speaks English. They stay for a minute. I don't know who they are. I guess maybe they're the crew. But they only stay for a minute. And the man who speaks English is there. And another man comes in. I haven't seen him before. I think he's a doctor. And they came in the door. Note that, as with Barney under hypnosis, Betty tends to mix the past and present tenses. And in one corner, there's a stool. A white... Is it white? I, I don't know if it's white or chrome. But there's a stool. There's a stool. And they put me on it. I sit on the stool. And then... I, I have a dress. My blue dress on. And they push up the sleeve of my dress. And they look at my arm here. They both look at my arm. And then they turn my arm over. And they look at it on here. She indicates a portion of her arm to Dr. Simon. And they, they rub. They have a machine. I don't know what it is. They bring that machine over and they put it... I don't know what kind of machine. It, it's something like a microscope. Only a microscope with a big lens. And they put... Uh, I don't know. They put... I had an idea they were taking a picture of my skin. And they both look through the machine here. And here, she gestures. And then they were talking. I don't know what they were saying. I couldn't understand this part what they were saying. And then they took something like a letter opener, only it wasn't. 
and they scraped my arm here, she indicates again. And there was a little, like a little, you know, how your skin gets dry and flaky sometimes, like little particles of skin. And they put, there was something like a piece of cellophane or plastic or something like that. They scraped and they put this that came off on this plastic. She had fully recovered her calmness now, very matter-of-factly. And then he, the man who spoke English, they both spoke English here, the man who brought me on this contraption is the one who took this. He took this plastic and he rolled it all up and he put it in the top drawer. And then they put my head. There was like a dentist. No, not like a dentist. Something like, you know, the brace of a dentist chair. You have this thing that holds your head. I don't know. It seemed to pull out the back of the stool, somehow or other, and they put my head in that. Again, the doctor has an adjustment to make, so he stops her for a moment. Then he tells her to continue. So, I'm sitting on the stool, and there's a little bracket. My head is resting against this bracket, and the examiner opens my eyes, and looks in them with the light, and he opens my mouth, and he looks in my throat, and my teeth, and he looks in my ears, and he turned my head, and he looked in my ear. And then he takes, like, uh, oh, a swab, or a Q-tip. I guess it's what they use on babies, and he cleans it out. He puts it in my left ear, and he puts this on another piece of this material, and the leader takes it and rolls it up and puts it in the top drawer, too. She stops a minute, as if to recall the picture more clearly. Oh, and then he feels my hair, down by the back of my neck and all, and they take a couple of strands of my hair, and they pull it out. And he gives this to the leader, and he wraps that all up and puts that in the top drawer. Then he takes something, maybe like scissors, I don't know what it is, and he cut, they cut a piece of it, and he gives that to him. And then he feels my neck, and he starts feeling behind my ears, under my chin, and down my neck, and in and through my shoulders, around my collarbone, and, again, a pause to recollect. Oh, and then they take off my shoes, and they look at my feet, and they look at my hands. And they look my hands all over, and he takes the light. It's very bright, so my eyes aren't always opened. I'm still a little scared, too. I'm not particularly interested in looking at them, and so I try to keep my eyes shut. But no, I do open, not all the time, just to give myself a little relief. When I'm not looking at them, I shut my eyes, and he takes something, and he goes underneath my fingernail. And then he, I don't know, probably manicure scissors or something and he cuts off a piece of my fingernail, and they look my feet all over, and keep, don't think they will do anything to them, they just feel my feet and my toes and all, and then the doctor, the examiner says, he wants to do some tests, he wants to check my nervous system, now she speaks with firmness, and I'm thinking, I don't know how our nervous systems are, but I hope we never have nerve enough to go around kidnapping people right off the highways as he has done, and oh, he tells me to take off my dress. He tells me to take off my dress. And then before I even have a chance, hardly to stand up to do it, the examiner, my dress has a zipper down the back? Yes, it has a zipper down the back. And the examiner unzips it. And so I slip my dress off. And I don't have my dress or shoes on. And there's next over the stool and sort of in the middle of the room, there's a table, some kind of table. It's not up very high. I'd say the height of the desk. So I lie down on the table, on my back, and he brings over this, oh, how can I describe it? They're like needles, a whole cluster of needles, and each needle has a wire going from it. I think it's something like a TV screen, you know? 
When the picture isn't on, you get all kinds of lines. Something like that. And so he puts me down on the table, and they bring the needles over, and they don't stick them in me. No, not really like sticking a needle into a person, but they touch me with the needles. It doesn't hurt. At times she pauses, as if waiting for the process to be completed. Except, where was it? Someplace. He just touches, and I feel just the needle touching, that's all. It doesn't hurt at all. But then he does it all up in the back of my ears, and in here somehow. She points to different parts of the head. And up here, up in all different spots of my head. And then he probes more of my neck, here and in here somehow or other. She indicates her arms. And then down here, I don't know. Then he puts it on my knee, and when he did, my leg jumped. And then on my foot too. He did it around my ankle, somehow or other. And then they have me roll over on my stomach. And they touch all along my back. They touch all these needles, somehow or other. I don't know what they're doing, but they seem to be so happy about whatever they're doing. So then they roll me over on my back, and the examiner has a long needle in his hand. And I see the needle, and it's bigger than any needle that I've ever seen. And I ask him what he's going to do with it. She begins to get upset again. It won't hurt me. And I ask him what, and he said he just wants to put it in my navel. It's just a simple test. More rapid sobbing. And and I tell him, no, it will hurt. Don't do it. Don't do it. And I'm crying, and I'm telling him, it's hurting, it's hurting. Take it out, take it out. And the leader comes over, and he puts his hand, he rubs his hand in front of my eyes, and he says, it will be all right. I won't feel it. She becomes calmer, and, and all the pain goes away. The pain goes away, and I'm still sore from where they put the needle. I don't know why they put the needle into my navel, because I told them they shouldn't do it. Another pause. Doctor, did they make any sexual advances to you? Betty, no. Doctor, they didn't? Betty, no. I asked the leader. I said, why did they? Why did they put that needle in my navel? And he said it was a pregnancy test. I said, I don't know what they expected, but that was no pregnancy test here. And he didn't say any more. Doctor, all right, we'll stop here now. You'll be relieved, relaxed, and at ease. Perfectly at ease, comfortable, and relaxed. When I wake you up, you will not remember anything that has transpired here. You will not remember anything that has transpired here until I tell you to recall it. He repeats the last phrase for emphasis, as he has before with Barney. But it will not trouble you, and you will not be worried about it. You'll be comfortable and relaxed and at ease. No pains, no aches, no anxieties. You have no fear, no anxiety. You are comfortable and relaxed. You may wake now. Betty opens her eyes slowly. Betty, am I all the way awake? Doctor, you are awake completely. What happened? Betty, wake, waked, awake, waked up. Head feels fuzzy. She laughs lightly. Doctor, feel all right now? Betty, yes. Doctor, that's good. We'll continue next time, a week from today, same time. Betty is dismissed by the doctor. Betty woke up from her long session feeling drowsy, much as if she had been awakened from a normal night's sleep. She found herself looking around the office, a little startled, and was vaguely aware that she had been slightly upset. Somehow I had the feeling I had been crying, she later recalled. You've heard of people crying in their sleep, and the person wakes up, and they're sort of conscious that they've been crying in their sleep? I had this feeling. I really didn't have the feeling of actually awakening completely for about two days. I felt sort of in a daze, a shock, and it was difficult for me to concentrate. I felt that 
If I just closed my eyes, I would go right back to sleep again. In the car, Barney kept asking Betty about her reaction. She explained that she felt all right, and she didn't feel up to talking about it. They spent Saturday night with some friends near Boston, but most of the time Betty felt exhausted and was not very good company. However, she was more composed after a few days, and as the doctor had suggested, calm and relaxation took over. She did not know at the time, nor did Barney, that a recall was almost identical with the long report she had written about her dreams. So, folks, as the good doctor told Betty, we will continue this story next week. There are plenty of people who claim that Betty and Barney saw nothing that autumn night in 1961, but JT is not one of them. We will get to what it may have been in a future episode, but this encounter is too good to rush. Whatever happened that night over 60 years ago, you can tell it terrified both Barney and Betty to their very core. And of course, we have our quote from the iconic pipe-smoking legend of ufology himself, J. Allen Hynek. Ridicule is not a part of the scientific method, and the public should not be taught that it is. Take care, have a great week, and if you have any hazy memories of strange men flagging you down in the dark, all I can say is, better you than me.